I'm allowed to have multiple people in each bedroom because there's also a lot of people who do this as long as I pay, you know, the city tax, the business tax. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. This is Sarah Larby and you are listening to Where Should I Invest? Today's guest is Ryan Cha, who graduated with his Doctor of Pharmacy back in 2015 and uh, has done that and also became a real estate investor and he's been able to create some really good cash flow through renting some rooms in his properties over time and he makes just under $11,000 per month in rental income and he started not that long ago he bought his first property in 2016 so you know this is not a get rich quick thing but you can do it over time consistently and it's not going to take 30 years either so he's got uh, some great properties and he's actually doing it a little bit differently where he's doing shorter mortgages so rather than amortizing it over 30 years he is putting his mortgages as 10 years and 15 years for different reasons and everybody's got their different strategies so super interesting hope you guys enjoy the podcast and by the way if you haven't yet gone to the rightclub.com we have now launched a whole online platform so you guys can actually ask questions get answers for any real estate investing questions you might have find your team of experts as well to help you move forward get referrals and so much more so check that out therightclub.com it's free to register you might as well and uh, and feel free to add me as a contact as well so hopefully you guys enjoy the podcast and uh, reach out if there is anything i can help you with sarah at sarahlarby.com ryan Shaw, welcome to the show how are you great how's it going sarah thanks for inviting me on the podcast absolutely my pleasure now where are you dialing in from today i'm dialing in from california California. I'm a little bit jealous. I'm a little bit jealous <laughs> of your weather. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Whereabouts in California? Uh, Sacramento area. Okay. Um, but I actually invest in Stockton, California, which is about an hour away. Awesome. Awesome. So how did you get into real estate investing? I would say I was first inspired by my grandpa. He bought a couple properties in the Bay Area. And then from that, he was able to retire early and basically all the rental expenses, I mean, sorry, the rental income paid for all of his expenses. So that's why he was able to retire early and then live, basically have the income paid for all of his expenses until he lived to a ripe old age of 93 and a half. So not only that, he was able to help pay for uh, my college tuition and that of my brothers as well. So I realized that real estate is really one of the best ways to create generational wealth. And, you know, I kind of got into the whole financial freedom movement, right, where basically I want to be able to do what I want, where I want, with whom I want to do it with, and basically live a life on my own terms. So that's why, you know, my goal was to create a six-figure passive income that when my properties are paid off, just basically, you know, let me live my life and support my family, uh, support my parents, and then maybe travel more. Awesome. So what does your portfolio consist of then today? So it's four single family homes. 
I bought one a year. I started in 2016. I wanted to get started right away. So after, so I, I'm, first of all, I graduated as a pharmacist in 2015. So after a year of saving up, I just put a, all of my money on a down payment on my first property. I bought for 262000 and it went up to 320000 around now. So yeah, just from the appreciation, I actually made quite a bit. I did actually make mistakes as well on that first property, which we can talk about later. And then I bought one property a year after that. And now I'm 27 and I have uh, four single family homes and 18 tenants. And that makes me $10,755 in rental income per month. So who, what's your tenant profile? So I invest in college towns. What I do is I buy a single family home, about three minute walk from the college. And then I try to create extra bedrooms where I can. So I'll turn an extra family room into like a bedroom, for example, or sometimes I'll put up drywall and create an extra bedroom that way. And that only is like a thousand dollar project or so, but each room rents out for around $620 per month. You know, that's totally worth it to put in that extra room. And then it really maximizes my profit. My Usually I would be able to get like $1,700 on a property if I were to rent it out as a single family home. But if I rent out per bedroom as like a kind of like a multi-unit property, then I'm able to get $2,700 to $3,100 per month, depending if I do a four or five bath uh, bedroom. So the student rental is definitely bringing you the income. I know in, in some areas, so like you're in the U.S., but we have some rules and regulations on how many people can be in a single family property. And one of the yeah. ways often we get away with it is we mm. have everybody on one lease, as an example. Like, how, like what are the rules and regulations out in California on student rental? Yeah, exactly. So you definitely have to check with your city because um, it's very city-specific. For uh, the city that I invest in, I called up the you know city planning and a development commission, right? And they said as long as you create a business license with the city, you're allowed to even have multiple leases on a house. And you know this is city specific, like I said, so you always have to check with your city. So I'm allowed to have multiple leases. I'm allowed to have multiple people in each bedroom because there's also a lot of people who do this. As long as I pay, you know, the city. Uh, tax, the business tax for the business license, then all that is, you know, legal. So yeah, just, you know, check where you city, write down who you talk to, right, to make sure everything's legal. But yeah, it's it's allowed in, in this city. Mm -hmm. So so just out of, you know, just to get an idea, so you were giving me an example of one of the properties that you bought and the price, like what, you know, if somebody wants to go and buy in your market in California, like what kind of mm -hmm. price ranges are they looking at? Ooh, yeah, California, depending on the area, I would say Sacramento's in like the 500,000, 400 or 500,000 price range. U.S., yeah. And that's kind of why I bought in Stockton because it's around 250,000 to 330,000 or so around for a three bed, two bath. And those are the properties I go for, basically cookie cutter properties, right? And I wanted to invest in Stockton because it made a lot more sense uh, cash flow wise. If I were to buy a 500,000 three bed, two bath, I would be having to make a lot more per bedroom in order to make it work. But for 300,000, it makes a lot more sense. I make cash flow on a 15 year mortgage 
So all of my leases except for one are on a 15-year mortgage, meaning by time I hit 42, they're all guaranteed to be paid off with a six-figure income coming in. Or, you know, I could pay them off earlier using my W-2 income and reinvesting my cash flow, which is what I've been doing actually for, for buying each house. I reinvested the cash flow and then I could retire as early as uh, 31 years old. That's really interesting. See, because I have a different perspective on that of saying you're going to probably pay some down faster mm-hmm. by 30 year amortization so that your cash flow is higher. And if you want to have the ability to prepay or add extra, you can, but you're not forced to with your debt to income ratios. They might affect as much. So it's interesting that you took the 15 year route, but I can see the argument mm-hmm. there too, especially if you can cash flow still with 15 yeah. years. I think that's the key. Yeah, because it cash flows, the debt to income ratio isn't affected as much. And I'm able to, you know, purchase more properties. Other things I've done is take out equity on the like the first house, right? It went up, what's 50,000 at least. So I took out that as equity, and or as a HELOC, home equity line of credit, and I used that to buy the fourth house. Got it. And then you just factor in the cost of service, the debt on the HELOC into your cash flow for your house number four. Exactly, yeah. All right, awesome. So, yeah, there's definitely an argument for doing the 30 year, for, especially for the debt to income. But, you know, for me, I figured I'll be paying these back relatively quickly. And plus, I do have the um, pharmacy income I could use as well as leverage. So I'm able to just do the 15 year and get a slightly, you know, a lower interest rate. I would say about 05 to 0.21% lower interest rate by doing the 15 years yeah interesting i mean i know the financing world is so different us versus canada i mean we you know i mean it's just not remotely the same thing but just out of curiosity like when you're saying what is a lower interest for you um as we're talking in march of uh, 2020 uh right now the interest rates are around 3.25 percent i just called up my lender um but so on that's on the 15 year I would say a 30 year is more like uh, 3.754% right now, but they're expected to decrease because the, you know, the federal reserve, of course, lowered their interest rates, the federal fund rates. Right. And then they're expecting to do quantitative easing and all that. So they're thinking that yeah, interest rates will lower. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, an, it's interesting. I, I always say this to, to my Canadian fellow investors is when it comes to taxes and financing properties, and some of the legalities, it's, it's completely different, right? But the structure, the, you know, the type of real estate strategies, the numbers in terms of like how to analyze certain things are quite similar. So there's still things that are applicable, but then there's still a lot of things that are, that are, uh, are not. But talking about things that are applicable, yeah. you mentioned that you had made some mistakes in the beginning that you learned from. I'm sure that's applicable for all Canadians too. What is that, what is that for you? Yeah, so actually the first house I bought was over 100 years old. And I didn't really do my due diligence on, you know, examining the property during the escrow phase. Uh, one thing I learned that I should have done is a sewage lateral line inspection. It only costs a couple hundred dollars, but for me, it would have saved thousands. So what happened is I got a call on, I think it was a Saturday night around 11 p.m. saying, you know what, there's, a, there's sewage coming out of the kitchen sink onto the kitchen floor. So, you know, you can imagine I was panicking, trying to call up plumbers and I had to go through like four or five numbers before I finally found someone who would clean up the place and sanitize it, right? Um, And then eventually I had to also put in a sump pump 
And then I stuck, we stuck a camera down the sewage pipe and we found out the whole pipe was pretty much busted. So the whole line would have to be replaced and it cost $6,000 to do that. So overall, you know, probably $9,000 just spent on that sewage line inspection. Not only that, I also had like pest control issues. I had uh, rats, I had fleas, and a lot of that could have been prevented by doing preventative maintenance type of stuff. So all in all, I would say I probably spent like over $20,000 on that property. I didn't necessarily have to spend that much if I'd done more preventative maintenance. And like I said, if I did the sewage line inspection during the escrow phase, I could have used that as a negotiation point at the point of closing. You know, maybe they could cut me a check to replace the line or they could replace the line during escrow phase, right? Yeah, you know, as you were saying this, I have a house. My very, very first property that I bought was made, yeah. uh, built in 1850, 1851 or I don't know, something along those lines. And the exact same thing, uh, but it is from tree roots uh, that were going into the plumbing. So it cost us about that. I think it was like 9000 And the government, there was like some kind of program where we got a bit of a rebate back, but it was definitely a good learning experience. So like anybody that's got, in my opinion, moving forward, a, a tree, a big, big yeah. tree in an older house with older pipes, um, yeah. get scoped because chances are that the tree roots might have started already you know, going through and, uh, we probably still would have bought it. He's probably still would have bought it, but it's, it's good to factor that stuff in and potentially factor that stuff into your selling or your offer price. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the exact same case for me. I uh, had these big oak trees, right. And they dug their roots, roots into the cast iron piping. So mm -hmm. yeah, good, good point. Yeah, you know, it's not always uh, rainbows and butterflies, like shit happens once in a while too. But you know, over time, yeah. it's, it's all worth it. Um, yeah, and you learn to like do your due diligence too, right? You know, once you uh, get experience, you learn um, for the future, these are some of the things I could do. So one of the things I did to prevent pest control problems in the future was try to remove trees where I could, right? And the, the squirrels and the rats that like on my first house, they would climb the branches and then get into, you know, get on top of the roof and then enter the house that way. So just by trimming the branches or removing the trees, that prevents a lot of pest control issues. You could also prevent a lot of plumbing issues by using, um, you know, plumbing products. Like one I swear by is called the Green Gobbler. You just pour that down your kitchen sink and showers and it eliminates pretty much virtually all plumbing issues. And it, it basically gets rid of the hair and the grease. And yeah, then though I haven't had plumbing issues since I've had my tenants pour that down twice a year or so. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, I just want to take a moment and interrupt the podcast to introduce you to my mortgage broker, Dahlia Barsoom, and her team at Streetwise Mortgages. Because everything around us is changing the world as we know it is not going to be the same. COVID-19, the economic crisis is a time of uncertainty for many of us. And the lending and real estate landscape, they're changing quite rapidly day by day. Today's financing and investment decisions are going to be different than the ones that we made yesterday. Dahlia and her team are going to be able to help us maneuver through all of this. They're property investors themselves, so they've worked with 
thousands of real estate investors across Ontario and they have their pulse and their finger on what's happening around us in real time from a real estate financing and investments point of view. Her team of advisors are committed to helping us keep informed and get that up-to-date information. And they're also going to be able to help us navigate through this crisis to also mitigate and minimize any financial distress during this whole transition and also help us emerge out of this in a strong financial position so that we can leverage ourselves for some great opportunities that are going to be coming to us. They've been able to help many investors in times like this by really planning out your plan for the good, but also for the bad, because these circumstances that are happening are going to be very individual for all of us. And they're going to help navigate three key parts, financial stability, financial agility, and opportunity, and help you manage through those three things. When it comes to stability, how can you enhance your reserves and your liquidity to weather the storm? You're going to have different plans, so it's important to get that individualized plan. How can you utilize mortgage payment deferrals? Should you? Should you not? Why or why not? Any debt restructuring opportunities, those are all things that Dahlia and her team can help you work with. Now, when it comes to financial agility, there's some things that you might want to talk about are how do you make some improvements to your monthly budget so that you can increase your cash flow? Are there any financing tools that you can use to cover some short-term cash flow deficits? When it comes to opportunity, there's going to be some great opportunity that's going to come out of this. How can you set yourself up? for success. So her and her team are going to be able to help you maneuver through these things and create a plan, not only for the good times, but also in times like this, so that you can handle the storm and come out ahead. Feel free to reach out to Dahlia and her team at info at streetwisemortgages.com or go to her website, streetwisemortgages.com. And now back to the show. And it's called Green Gobbler. I don't know if we have that yet. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Oh, the green goblet. It yeah, it's yeah. a really great product. So what, twice a year? I mean, I do I do my um, my inspections twice a year on my property. So it could be a great thing to just add with the handyman that's going through with us to, to be able to do it at the same time. So great tip for sure. Yeah, so, only and, takes a couple minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In this student market, like how are you doing your leases? Are you doing them for like the 12-month term, not eight months, nine months? Like how's that looking for you? I am. So yeah, so I have an investment strategy for which tenants I look for as well. So I do want to prioritize professional students or students of professional schools like pharmacy, dentistry, medical school. A lot of times like for the school I invest in, the schools are year round. They have a summer session as well. So they basically need the house for the full year. So that's one reason I, I do 12 month leases. I do find uh, undergrad tenants still. I usually prefer third or fourth year students because they're usually more mature than the you know first and second year students I find. And I do I don't give them the option to do a nine month. I do a 12 month and they have the option to sublease during the summer for our uh, summer school students if they you know, need help with that. But usually they're able to find summer school students. But um, yeah, just having that, um, just saying it's a 12 month lease at the very beginning at the get go, right, they know what to expect come summertime. And they, they, you know, try to plan accordingly, let their friends know, get the word out that, you know, if they're not there during summer, they can find a summer school students. Yeah, absolutely. So that's interesting. So here's my next question. And depending on when this airs, it may still be applicable or not. But 
So you've got these students, they, they're paying monthly, and then all of a sudden with Corona, school shuts down and, uh, and everything's virtually, so they technically don't need to be there anymore. Now what? That is a great question, and that's something uh, we're dealing with. Uh, so, so far, I've only had three tenants out of my 18 tenants say, hey, you know, the school shut down, I'm going home back to my hometown, right? So the way I, you know, kind of deal with that, it's very similar to the whole sublease during the summer thing, right? So I say, you know what, you can find someone else, right, another tenant to sublease to. And I'm finding right now that's probably the best strategy because I've already put out, I help market for them. And I've already had five people contact me for potential sublease. So that will cover those three tenants, you know, very well. Um, I do try to like work with them. So I make it clear that rent is still due, but you know, I'm going to work with you to make sure, you know, you could pay the rent, like subleasing, right? I'll <clears throat> waive the uh, utilities because they're not living in the house, right? So I'll, I'll waive the utility bill for that particular tenant if they're not living in it. So those are the things I've done. Um, I would say those are your best options. Also, I do give like a, a link to the tenants, basically a link to uh, resources they can use to help pay the rent, like the Salvation Army. Uh, there's people they can contact that could potentially help them pay the rent. These organizations help um, people who are unemployed uh, pay rent. Okay. All right. So good tips there. Again, in Canada, it might, it might be EI, it might be, you know, different government programs that can help out as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you work full time as a pharmacist. How do you manage properties, the students, everything plus a full time job? Yeah. So it's all about having a, a strong system in place, having systems of processes in case something comes up like tenant complaints or something breaks down. So for something breaks down, I have a, a contract team uh, for contractors. And basically, you know, they're all good at certain things. And, you know, basically I'll triage when the text message comes in, I'll triage which contractor to send it to or forward it to. And I just forward him the message. He has the um, code to the electronic um, door, at, at, you know, the entrance. So he can let himself in. And then he could get his work done and then basically, uh, you know, go out and then send me a check and then I'll check with the tenants if the whole, um, sorry, he'll send me a bill and I'll check with the tenants if the work has been done properly and then I'll send them a check and then that's it. You know, it's, it's very hands off, very simple, just forward the text to them and then they get the job done, right? Is that, and that's the importance of having, you know, built a team and relationships as well and, and network, right? Yeah, absolutely. it sounds a lot like what I do as well. Like if there's a plumbing issue, it's like a call or text to my plumber. I'm like, here, you know, here's the, the house and uh, here's the tenant and they communicate, they go fix it, fix it. And then I get an email uh, invoice and then I make sure that that gets paid right away. Like I don't even allow exactly. like one day to go because then they're going to, they're going to say, if I do something for Sarah, I get paid right away. Like that's unfortunately with trades, that's one of the biggest issues they see, right? Is having to chase money. So don't be yeah. that <laughs> pay them yeah, right away and that service yeah, yeah absolutely cool so so what are some things that you do when it comes to maintaining the property or just like some tips that you can offer on even just management in general yeah as we said um, earlier just the preventative maintenance is, is very good key um, there will be issues where tenants like if you do what I do 
and you rent out per bedroom to maximize your profit, there'll be issues where a tenant might complain about another tenant. In that case, I learned the best thing to do is empower your tenants. So tenant empowerment is very key here. You want to make sure that they understand that, you know, they are adults and they need to talk face to face with the other tenant that they have um, issue with. Right. Because one time I had a tenant complain and then I tried to talk with the other tenant and then the guy was like, oh, this guy went behind my back and then he got mad. And then the whole situation escalated and got worse from there. So now I learned, you know, it's best rather than be, try to be the middleman. I have them talk face to face and work it out. And if it's still not worked out, then I'll I'll give a call to the other guy and then come up with an actionable plan, like certain things that they will do to make sure the issue doesn't come up again, right? If that doesn't work, I've only had to do this once. You can always go, like for my you know, uh, tenant class, you can always go to uh, their parents and say, hey, you know, your uh, child or whatever has been um, you know, causing these issues, unfortunately, with other tenants, and we've had these complaints, and then can you please you know, talk to them? And it's cleared up right away after that. That's awesome. So when you've got new tenants coming in, like, do you vet them based on, on, you know, how they're going to gel with the other students or do you let them kind of bring their own friends in the, in the other rooms? Like, how does that work? I do. So I prioritize groups and that's just kind of like efficiency of filling the rooms. Right. Um, so if they do have a group of four people or five people, I say, great, you know, you guys get the whole house. Right. Sometimes I do try to vet students and see who's better with whom. But I also kind of try to, you know, mix it up because I want if there are like students who are more prone to party and you can kind of tell from their social media profile. Right. Um, then I'll put in with tenants who are like in professional school and also need to study. Right. So like if the guy does want to you know, have a party, the other guy says, hey, dude, you know, that's not cool because I got a final tomorrow. Or I got a midterm. I got to pass. Right. I got to get my uh, degree. So kind of mixing him up like that kind of creates this atmosphere like, okay, well, we can't create uh, like a frat boy house or anything like that, right? Yeah. So I've never had like real issues with uh, like crazy partiers or anything just by targeting the right tenants, right? And just vetting them, like you said. And if you're targeting the ones that are going into pharmacy school, I'm sure that those types of uh, students are going to be pretty studious in comparison to maybe somebody that is just doing a generalized program or some, I don't know, something something else <laughs> I yeah, exactly. get, like shot here exactly. <laughs> if I like create saying another program but yeah, uh, yeah no, I, they're all very um, I would say a lot of them they just use the house to you know sleep and shower and most of the time they're studying at the library or they're in class right so I kind of minimize the damage to the house because of that and not only that, the parents, sometimes they'll come in and they'll clean up for their kids. And so they'll vacuum the whole house, potentially. And so I also have that added benefit of the tenants help maintain the I mean, sorry, the parents help maintain the houses too. Do you provide them things like vacuum and cleaning supplies or is that up to them to buy? I do, yeah. I, I do provide like everything I can, all amenities I can, all like furnishings. So I provide, a for each bedroom, I provide a bed, a desk, a chair and a nightstand at a minimum and a standing closet if there currently isn't a closet. And then a so, cleaner, like a shovel, a rake, like do you provide those things too? I guess you like uh, yes. in California. 
but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try to get it from the previous owner, obviously at a discounted price for the most part. But yeah, I do provide everything, and it's a big like you. You have to, of course, put up the capital expenditures one time, but then it pays off in the long run because your house is now very a lot more attractive, right, to the student market. And plus, you're able to write off all those expenses in your taxes. Absolutely. Why not? <laughs> so, when it comes to like water, gas, hydro, I mean, I guess whatever you guys have out there, how do you split that, or you is it included in the rent? It's split evenly among the tenants. Yeah. So at first, I did utilities included, and then I realized that you know the the tenants could jack up the energy bill. And, you know, I would ask them to maybe use less energy, but they wouldn't really care because I'm the one paying for it. Right. So by putting it on, uh, you know, based off of how much they use, they also have to pay for how much they use. Right. It seems to work out a lot better because now they have motivation. Like if they do overuse the energy or abuse the energy or, or you know, water or whatever, then they will also have to pay for that extra amount in utilities. Okay, so how does that work? So you get the bill and then you give it to them and you say, send me like money, each of you the same amount? Or is there one that like is in charge of collecting the money and sending you the amount? Like, how, like can you just walk us through the details? So the second option, exactly. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say, again, I'm all about tenant empowerment. So if I can get one tenant to take the responsibility uh, to for paying the electric bill and the internet and the water, right, then I'll have them uh, put the bill in their name, right? And then they will pay the bill and then they'll collect from the other tenants. Got it. Okay. That's a great way to do it as well. So it doesn't even have to go to you first and then you Exactly. Yeah. Then that's another way of, to automate the whole thing because I work a full-time job. I used to work 40 hours as a pharmacist. Now I cut down to 32 because, you know, the rental income is starting to allow me more time freedom. Um, but yeah, um, I, I used to work 40 hours. So managing four properties, I would, I figured out how can I automate every single process so that I only spend like nowadays, I only spend, I would say less than an hour a week on the properties. Very cool. Awesome. So thanks for sharing your insights. So the next part of the podcast is our lightning rounds. I'm going to ask you a series of five questions. Everybody gets the same five questions. And you can give me the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? Sounds good. I'm ready. Question number one. What is your favorite real estate investing book ever? Other than uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, I would say, because I'm sure everyone says that, uh, I would say Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. That one's a great one that goes over like importance of building a team, networking, and the mindset piece as well, which I believe is very important as a real estate investor because things will come up that might, you know, shift your mindset, but you have to keep on track and, you know, say, this is what my, what I set out to do, right? This is what my goal was. And then that will keep you back on track. Yeah, absolutely. Great book. Number two, what is your favorite podcast? I would say, well, the Rich Dad Poor Dad podcast is, is pretty good. Uh, Bigger Pockets is great too. Okay. I, I go on, yeah, I go on a lot of podcasts, I would say. That awesome. one's a great one. Yeah. Question number three, what is your favorite pastime when you are not doing anything real estate related or working? I play, I practice, I play violin and I do martial arts in my free time. So yeah, those are, I, I would say actually recently I've been getting into bouldering. That's really fun. It's kind of like rock climbing, but there's no harness. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds scary. 
Uh, <laughs> question number four. If you lost all of your money and your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? I would say, you know, user relationships. I still have my uh, network, right? So I'll try to, or, you know, create a network. If I don't have a network, I would try to find a partner. And, you know, even though I don't have the money, I'll find someone who does have capital. And then I will use my expertise. I'll provide the skills and expertise and management, right, for the property and do like a joint venture or something along the way. Perfect. And last question, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend they spend it? I'd say invest in yourself, you know, uh, self-education, self-personal development. I, I actually strongly believe in that type of stuff because that's really what separates a lot of the unsuccessful people who give up, right, and quit um, from the people who become successful and really keep pushing hard and make, making sure that they achieve what they set out to do, their, their dreams and their goals, right? So I would say, yeah, spending on some personal development, some books, right? And yeah, that type of stuff. All right, very cool. Ryan, where can listeners find you if they wanted to reach out and know more? So I have a website and I have like an email list. Uh, so, you know, I, I provide really great resources for beginning investors, newbie investors. So my website's www.newbierealestateinvesting.com. That's www.newbierealestateinvesting.com. And Newbie is spelled N-E-W-B-I-E. All right, awesome. Any final last words of advice or one final tip that you wanted to share before we, uh, we finish the podcast? So we're in an unprecedented time if you're listening to this during the coronavirus outbreak, right? This is the time for opportunity. Every recession, like there's big companies that started during recessions, Microsoft, Disney, just to name a few. This is the time for opportunity. The people who will not be as successful, they're the ones who kind of hunker down and hold back. But the people who are successful investors, they're the ones who will put themselves out there, build their network and, you know, try to find good deals because there's a lot out there right now. So yeah, just get started. Awesome. I love it. Thank you, Ryan, for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you. And uh, thanks for sharing your insights, your knowledge, and congratulations on your success. Thanks for being on. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for inviting me again on the podcast. Hey, guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons. And at the time, they all seemed very valid. But as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked and also most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step -step online program called Rise. And it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. 
And you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.